it's winter. Tell you what, it's like really all the way winter. I went fishing yesterday with my friend Steve Tut, and I still have not warmed up, which is why I'm wearing 18 layers. Went to Nap's house for dinner last night, and I thought I was almost warm by the time we were done with dinner. I was still dressed like this, wasn't I? Pretty much. Woke up this morning, man, it's cold. Well, we're going to jump into the word. Are you guys ready? How many of you here have kids? How many of you have ever told your kids, stop staring? <laughs> kids do it unapologetically, right? At very close range. Because they're fascinated by human beings, and so they'll stare. Uh, what we've been doing in this uh, series is that we are uh, we're, we're choosing to, to stare. We're, we're choosing to, to look hard and long One of the things I miss about Alaska is that uh, there's no uh, interstates here where, uh, I don't know if you've had this moment where you're driving on the interstate and you're on cruise control and you, the person in front of you is not quite driving fast enough, so you're going to go around them and you get up just beside them and then the road kind of curves and so your speed evens out and so you're just kind of hanging out next to each other for a little while. I feel like you should probably get to know each other a little bit, you know. You're not sure where to look because you're kind of curious about what's happening in their car, but you shouldn't stare, right? So you don't. I want you to stare long and hard. I want you as a habit of your life to look long and hard without looking away at the person of Jesus, at his ministry, at his life, at the critical events that defined his ministry. And then I want you to go back again and look long and hard some more. There is something that happens in our hearts when we, when we put aside time and space, when we put aside some things to create space to intentionally look at Jesus, to consider him carefully, to, to ruminate over his words, over his actions. You want to jumpstart in your spiritual growth? Spend some time with Jesus. I thought Matt McCarter did just such a fantastic job last week presenting the word. Can I get an amen on that? That was fantastic, right? Yeah. And at the end of your teaching, it was, there was a simple petition. Would you, would, you, would you stop and look at the cross? Stop and look. Look long and hard. There is, a, there is a, an endless minefield of treasure to be gained for our lives now through careful study of Jesus. And so for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've looked particularly at what I've uh, we've termed the final scenes of, of the life of Jesus. We looked first at his, uh, his internal wrestling match in the garden in Gethsemane. Uh, then we looked at Jesus standing before his accusers and how he responded when he was put on trial really repeatedly over a short period of time. And then last week, uh, Matt 
examined uh, the scene of the crucifixion. And what I said at the beginning of this series, and I've repeated, is that we want to observe carefully in this very intense uh, experience, this very uh, crucial moment, these very painful moments. We want to look carefully at what it is that Jesus says and does. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at the final scene, the scene of the resurrection. Uh, It's a story that I'm guessing most of you here have heard before. But this is what I want to do this morning. I'm going to tell you the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And then I want to uh, fairly quickly uh, highlight a couple of theological truths about resurrection. Because it's in, in, in Christian teaching... Resurrection is just not, is not just a historical event that happened to Jesus. There's something much more. And then where I want to end is I want to tell you a story of my own experience of discovering the resurrection in my own life. So we're going to do three things together. You guys on board with that? Yeah. The resurrection story, and I want you to tuck this away because we're going to pull this out later. The resurrection story is the pinnacle of impossibility, the apex of impossibility. When we arrive at the story of Jesus, and if you were to read historians or uh, yeah, historians who don't have faith in Jesus, they would say that much of the story of Jesus is tolerable maybe even explainable, but when you get to the resurrection, you have arrived at maximum impossibility. This is where they say, no, this can't be. This is not historically, scientifically, whatever, possible. In fact, I read a, uh, I was reading a, a, a debate on the resurrection of Jesus, and the guy who was who had been a believer actually for a long time. In fact, he went to the school I went to, he went to Moody. Um, He was arguing against the resurrection and he said, when Christians talk about the resurrection, they're not making a historical claim, they're making a theological claim. And I say, no, no. We are making a historical claim that there was an event, there was a thing that happened And this is how it happened. Jesus was crucified. It was not stopped. It happened. He was put on the cross between two other criminals. He was nailed to those beams. He was raised up on that. Uh, as a, as really, in, in, in Roman culture, as a display, as a warning to those who would dare to cross the authorities, right? We'll make an example of these people. That's part of the purpose of the crucifixion. So it's in a public place, and they're left there for a period of time, put on display. This is what happens when you uh, don't get along with uh, Roman leadership. And so Jesus was crucified there. Uh, Matt covered the different statements that he made. And uh, they came to make sure that these three men who had been crucified 
uh, were dead, the Roman soldiers came to ensure that their life had expired and what they would do is that they would take some kind of a club or hammer or something and they would break out their knee joints so that uh, while, while hanging, uh, they could not support their own weight, which would then lead to asphyxiation. Uh, and so it says that uh, the guards were sent to break the legs of the crucified prisoners, and it says that they broke the legs of the two, but when they came to Jesus, they observed that he was already dead, and so they did not break his legs. Matthew, Matthew draws significance from this. He says, do you remember all the way back? Uh, many, many lifetimes ago, an epoch ago, when God said, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to spill its blood and I want that blood to be a covering for you and your family. But when you take that lamb, I want you to make sure that that lamb has no broken bones. It must be without defect. Then it says that just as the prophets were told, it says that he was pierced instead, right? His legs were not broken. They pierced his side with a spear to ensure that he was, in fact, gone. Blood and water spilled. And then this story, and again, I'm pulling from the different Gospels. Uh, then the story tells us that there was a man by the name of Joseph who was a wealthy man. In fact, he was part of the Jewish leadership. He was from Arimathea. It says that Joseph worked up the courage along with his friend Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? We talked about Nicodemus. The storytellers tell us that these two men were those who were waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. They had a sense that something was still going on. They were, they were aware. They were sensitive to this. It says that these two men, because of their position and because of their power, they, they, they felt the confidence to go to Pilate and request that the body of Jesus be put into their care. So they did, and they went, and they requested. And Joseph uh, was a wealthy man and had been able to afford for himself uh, the creation of a new tomb site, a burial site for him and his family. It had never been used. And uh, this burial site was hewn into stone, and then there was a large stone that could be rolled over the entrance. It says that they, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus down from the cross, uh, wrapped his body with spices, as was their tradition, to preserve, uh, even honestly to eliminate the, the odor of a dead body. And they uh, wrapped the body of Jesus and they placed it in the tomb of Joseph the unused tomb. And then the story tells us that the Jewish leaders became concerned because unlike the disciples, they remembered that Jesus had predicted his resurrection. And they said, we don't want any foul play and we don't want any room for 
uh, conspiracy theories. So they went to Pilate and they said, uh, we need you to make sure that no one tampers with the body of Jesus. Because we're pretty sure that if someone does tamper, it'll start some conspiracy theories and then the disciples will claim that he has been raised from the dead. And Pilate, remember Pilate, he's the frustrated leader, right? He says, yeah, yeah, whatever, okay, go ahead. Take some soldiers, do whatever you need to do. And so not only did they take uh, a, a group of guard men down to the tomb to guard the tomb, but they placed a seal on the, between the stone covering the entrance and the entrance. Would have been probably like a wax composite of some kind. They placed on there and they sealed it so that if that had been broken off, then they knew that someone got into the tomb, right? Um, side note, uh, angels are not slowed down by wax seals placed on stones. <clears throat> and sure enough, there they came. Now, I want to acknowledge something, and this will actually make you a more careful student of the narrative. Uh, at this point in the narrative, uh, the four Gospels uh, offer fairly different details from each other. There are some similarities and there are some significant differences. And the difference is it's hard to tell exactly the timeline of, of a fairly quick succession of events. Um, but this is the best we can tell, is that there was a couple of angels. Some of the, the, the Gospels only mention one. Another Gospel mentions more than one. Uh, there was a couple of angels there at the tomb that the, the women who arrived first, Mary the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, um, and then a couple of other ladies are mentioned. When they showed up at the tomb, this is what they encountered. Uh, the tomb was opened, the seal had been broken, the stone had been moved out of the way, the guards were debilitated somehow, they had been struck with fear. We don't know if they were just sitting there speechless or if they had passed out or what happened. And there was no one in the tomb. The body of Jesus was gone. And so these, the women showed up and uh, had an interaction with the angelic beings. And the angelic beings had sort of expressed some surprise, like, you know that he's not here, Right? You do remember, like, for the, like the last year, he's been telling you, on day three, you should not look for him here. He won't be here. <clears throat> now, in the, uh, in the musical version of the resurrection, if you've ever seen one, this is where the hallelujah chorus Da, 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 da. Sorry, guys. We're having some connection issues. This is where the Hallelujah Chorus breaks forth. And uh, there's usually like lights and smoke, if you've seen the musical version. You guys tracking with this? You've seen the musical version of the resurrection? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, sure. It's very loud. It's very majestic. This is the culmination of the story, right? Well, in the actual telling of the story of the resurrection, the resurrection is an event 
characterized by two things. Number one, a tremendous amount of confusion. And number two, disbelief. The story says that the women went and, uh, in fact, one of them says, uh, John, I believe it says that the women were afraid to tell anyone, but the other stories tell us that they ran and found the disciples, and both are possible, right? They didn't want to say anything to anyone else, but they ran and they found the disciples. And it says when they told the disciples everything that they had uh, experienced, the disciples did not believe it. They said, this is, what are you talking about? Luke 24, 11, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Mary meets Jesus, doesn't realize that it's Jesus. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus, they meet Jesus, and they don't realize that it's Jesus. Jesus appears to the disciples, but Thomas is gone, and Thomas finds out, and he says, I don't believe you. That seems a little too impossible. The story of the resurrection of Jesus is a story that is characterized by confusion and disbelief. Not only did they not see it coming, they couldn't believe that it came. That's the story of the resurrection. I want to really quickly make five observations regarding the resurrection, and then I want to land on experiencing the resurrection and tell you what that looks like. Five truths regarding the resurrection. The first one is this, loss of something good is bad. I know. I'm pretty wise. And you probably find my truths to be stunning and you feel speechless. I went fishing yesterday Fish on, good. Oh, now fish off. It's bad. When you lose something good, that we experience that as being bad, right? We tracking? Man, I'm having a hard time with my water bottle. <laughs> Skip your back just in time. In grief. We had Skip. We had him, that was good. And then Skip left, that was bad. And now Skip is back, and that's good. When we lose something that is good, we experience that as being bad, okay? Number two, death is always experienced as loss. We always experience death as losing something. And we experience losing something that is good as something bad. The final scenes of Jesus' life, his ministry, are primarily stories of grief associated with that loss. We see even Jesus himself wrestling with his decision to forfeit his own life. And everyone around him is coming to terms with his decision to forfeit his own life. Each of them are navigating this loss 
in their own way and differently from each other. Death is always experienced as loss. That's what death is. It's the end of something, the loss of something. And number three, resurrection only comes after death. By definition, resurrection can only come after death, which is loss, which is bad. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When that seed falls into the ground and dies, there is a resurrection. You cannot have resurrection unless you have a death. If resurrection is what is desired, then a death is required. If you refuse death, then you forfeit resurrection. This is where the story reaches the apex of impossibility. It's right after death because we don't know how God is going to pull it off. Not like we don't know what he's going to do. So like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, they're at Helm's Deep and they're fighting the battle and they're just about to lose. And then what's going to happen? Oh, no. Gandalf shows up on the, what is it, look to the east after the third day or something, and I'll be riding a horse and I'll have like a billion people with me, right? That's I don't know what's going to happen. But if the movie goes, oh wow, everyone just died, now what? That's what we're faced with. There's, there's a termination to the storyline, There's not usually a storyline that comes after all of your main characters die, unless you're Marvel and the movie's called Endgame, and then you just back up time and start over and do it all again, which is a dumb plot line. No, it's not like we don't know how he's going to pull it off. The story has reached the point of impossibility. There is, no, there is no plan B that could be available at this point because he's died. That's the end of the story. We have fully arrived at the wrong outcome. He's dead. But remember that part where resurrection only comes after death. Number four, resurrection is 
becoming something wholly different and new. This is not Frankenstein. We're not putting 27 gigawatts into body parts. Resurrection is becoming something that is wholly different and new. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, I'm going to read you a little bit of a longer portion. But some will ask, this is Paul speaking, some will ask, well, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. But when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just as a seed or perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, and the stars another, and the stars differ between stars and their splendor, and so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. You will be made into something that is wholly different and new. not the reviving of the old substance. It's the creation of something new. Number five, that which is resurrected is imperishable. That which dies as a prerequisite to resurrection and is resurrected does not Die again. That's what resurrection means. Picking it up, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, the body that is sown, the seed, is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So as is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. That which is resurrected becomes imperishable. It is immune to the threat of death in its new form, in its new substance. So what does it mean to experience the resurrection? The day the music died. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. I remember 
when I realized that my marriage was dying. We were not having fun. I mean, we did fun things, you know. But Jenny and I had had something good. And the good thing that we had was dying. And when you lose something good, that's bad. And death is always experienced as loss. And I remember the grief of that. The realization that there was something that we had that was good, that it was dying, and I couldn't stop it from dying. But I forgot that resurrection comes when? After death. Resurrection comes in at the apex of impossibility. When we say there, there could be no solution now. The story ended. It's fully arrived at its conclusion, but it arrived at the wrong conclusion. The story ended the wrong way. The story has reached maximum impossibility. And in my life, I arrived at a point where I knew that a shadow of a doubt I couldn't save it. I couldn't muster whatever was required, and I didn't even really know what that was, to save it. I could continue being married, but I knew that something had died. We both knew it. But resurrection is to become something wholly different and new. Resurrection is to replace the perishable with the imperishable. What I did not understand is that my emotions and my affections, my love for my wife were primarily upon the foundation of perishable love, fleshly attraction, getting the things that I want for myself from this person who seems so willing to give them. And that's a fantastic stage in relationships, right? Very little has been tested. There's been no heavy requirement for sacrifice at this point. It's just really enjoyable. It's a lot of fun. I'm super into her. She's super into me. How could this possibly ever end? Because it's amazing. And then as all things in the flesh, flesh dies.
And that's a confusing time. It's a time when it's hard to believe. It's almost never a time of lights and smoke and loud hallelujah choruses. Because just like with the disciples, when God I'm going to get through this. When he takes that dead thing and resurrects it as something wholly different and new and imperishable, I'm embarrassed to say that having experienced the resurrection in my own life, I did exactly what the disciples did. Nah, I don't think so. Uh, No, that can't be right. Because the resurrection is always at the maximum point of impossibility. There's There's no way to make this alive. There's no pulse left. It's, it's, it's gone. It's done. It's dead. And God says, perfect. And now I can do something wholly new, something wholly different, something that is empowered and enlivened by my spirit. And it has this unique quality, which you're going to find terribly refreshing, and that is... It's imperishable. When God takes a perishable love rooted in the gratification of the desires of the flesh and replaces it with an imperishable love that is rooted in a desire to serve and sacrifice for another person's well-being, that is an imperishable love. I tell young married couples all the time, if your highest motivation in life is to serve, you're going to love being married. Because the opportunity will always be afforded you from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep. You will have the unfettered opportunity to serve with every ounce of your strength. But if that doesn't sound fun, you are not going to like being married because it's the worst. God takes these things at the, at the end of ourselves when, when our own flesh has, has reached its ultimate weakness, its limits, its lack of ability. That's where God steps into our lives and says, yeah, it is bad to lose something good. It's loss. Death is always experienced as a loss. And I'm going to take that thing that died. And I'm going to do what only I can do. I'm going to bring it to life as something new, something wholly different, and something that will never die. He does that with love. He does that with peace. 
He does that with joy. If you have a joy that others are able to kill, maybe you should let that thing die so that you can experience the joy that is through the power of the resurrection in your life, which no one can kill because it's imperishable. I mean, or you can stick with the old joy, whatever. It's up to you. All of the imperishable gifts, the eternal gifts that come to us through the power of the Spirit of God in us are obtained through death leading to resurrection. That's how we lay hold of all of them. And if you don't understand that, you find yourself only afraid and confused and in disbelief when you grieve loss. You want to tell me that you don't believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus? Okay. Do you believe that I've experienced in my own life the power of the resurrection? I can tell you now that I have historical reasons to believe in the event of the resurrection. I've done some research. I think there's good evidence. But I have found nothing more compelling in my life than to experience something that I valued so much that died and God brought it to life as something wholly different, new, and imperishable. It's a miracle. Some of you right now are navigating the death of valuable things in your life. Maybe you, you had it perfectly envisioned how your career was going to go, and you are like three seconds away from full-speed impact into the ground, and you're grieving that loss because every time we lose something good, it's bad, right? Dying is loss. And yet the hope is, and this is the, this is the heart of the gospel message, that if you will entrust yourself to Christ and grab a hold of him, that in the other side of that death, there is a resurrection. And it's worth believing in. I've talked to so many people over the years who had a particular vision in their mind of how their relationship with their own children was going to go. We're going to do this. They're going to do this. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to kill it as a parent. It's going to be phenomenal. And then some things die in that dream, in those relationships. And, on the, and, 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 and at the other side of that death, when everything has reached maximum impossibility, there's this incredulous disbelief and confusion. How could this have gone this way? And God says, when you're ready, when you're ready, I'm ready. Oh, man, when the grace of God comes into our life and brings those things to life according to his image by the power of his spirit. I've heard the criticism, you know, Christians just always put on a happy face. And that's true for some. 
But when you walk in the power of the resurrection, this is not a mask. <laughs> I'm actually legitimately happy. Because God has given me a joy that's imperishable. And the only reason I even thought to lay hold of it is because I, I used to walk in a perishable joy and it died. And I said, well, I guess if I'm going to have joy, God's going to have to do the impossible. And guess what? As he often does, God did the impossible. And he could do that for you. And for those of you right now who are at that critical juncture, it may be that you just need to say, Lord, if you want this to die, then let it die. And I'm going to believe in your resurrection power to return to me something better, something wholly new and different and imperishable, and I will wait on your timing. Amen? Amen. Oh my goodness, it's 11.38. Can I invite the worship team up? Careful, I get preachy, I lose track of time. First Corinthians 15.13 If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that... We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are actually lost. If it is only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Would you guys stand? We're going to come before the Lord. We're going to worship the resurrected Christ together. Your worship is not only a blessing to him, it's a blessing to the people around you. That's why we come together as his body. If you would like prayer for anything, any need of any kind, we'll have prayer team members over here. They would love to join with you in prayer today. We have communion tables or stations around the room. We celebrate the body and blood of Jesus poured out unto death for us that we may have life. We have offering receptacles along the back. You can give to support the ministry of Church on the Rock. I would encourage you as we come into worship that you now in these few moments, that you full of belief and hope and expectation that you would connect with God now. Let's worship. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. But you might ask yourself, what is abundant life and how come I don't feel like I'm experiencing that? Well, Jesus also said that if anyone would come after him, that they would deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow him. If we want to experience this abundant life that Jesus promises, we need to 
uh, first let our very selves die for the sake of Christ. Because let me tell you something, there is no greater joy than a life in service to the King. If you've never done that, if you've never chosen to, to lay down your life so that Christ can be made alive in you, I'd encourage you uh, to go for prayer. We have um, at the back of the room, they'll be hanging around there. Or just talk to somebody after the service. Um, it's really not complicated. And uh, he's ready for you.